0: Um, Good morning. (laughs) Does it feel like a long time since Easter? Yeah. Yeah, it does, right? So you'll be forgiven if you don't remember that two weeks after Easter, we looked at Acts chapter 1 to start our series on waiting. We looked at the beginning nine verses or so where Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promised gift from the Father of the Holy Spirit. And we, we looked at that, and then we spent a couple weeks talking about waiting as part of the Christian life. And it remains a continuous part of the Christian life. But the disciples aren't still waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They waited maybe seven or ten days. We don't know exactly how long. Um, it's a guesstimate that they waited at most a couple weeks. And then we get to Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost Sunday. And today is pentecost sunday in the church calendar so yeah so we're going to be in acts chapter two and we're going to talk about the end of the waiting for the disciples and actually today we're starting the next sermon series we're going to spend four weeks on the holy spirit so today and the next three weeks following no interruptions in this series um we're going to talk about today's the person of the holy spirit and next week is the power of the holy spirit and then the purpose of the Holy Spirit, and then the place of the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're heading. And for the whole series, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. So today we're going to look at the first 13 verses. Um, not today, like today the first 13, and then next week we'll move on. We'll dance around Acts chapter 2 the whole time, um, because you have, to, you have to hold it kind of together in a lot of ways. Uh, but we're not going to go past verse 13 today. So if you've got your Bibles or a phone, or something that you want to look at other than the screen, you can pull that out and turn to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the Word. And we do this every Sunday. Uh, We do this to honor the Word of God. We do this as a part of being together in the sermon. We all participate in the study of the Word of God. And it's a good reminder for all of us that this is the best thing you're going to hear from me today, is the reading of the Word. So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came... Bergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, because we get to spend four weeks on this, and I'm excited to spend four weeks in Acts chapter 2, I wanted to start with some of the lead-up to this moment, to this violent wind and these tongues of fire. The disciples are all gathered together on the day of Pentecost, nearly 2,000 years ago, and, um, and they're, they're, they're gathered together and they have stuff going on in their hearts and minds, they have to have had stuff going on in their hearts and minds. They're not they're people like us. They've been waiting since Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. So on the one hand, they have all of these thoughts and expectations would, that would come from that promise, but they're also gathered together for a feast day. They're gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost. And I know for most of us, we think about the word Pentecost, and we think about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but Pentecost is a Jewish feast day, and that is no doubt why they were all gathered together in a room. They were gathered together for the festival. And that comes with its own set of thoughts and expectations, as every celebration does. You step into any kind of party, whether it's something just like a family birthday party or something like a New Year's celebration in the whole city, you come with a certain heart and a certain mind and a certain attitude. You can't help it and um, to talk about the person of the holy spirit today i want to look at where those disciples would have been in those two sets of expectations and thoughts and mind and heart because they both come together in the coming of the holy spirit so first let's talk about pentecost now i said many of us we think about pentecost and we think about the coming of the holy spirit I didn't know myself that Pentecost was a Jewish feast day till I went to seminary. So I'd gone to church for a long time and I had no idea that Pentecost was something, like it was a special day before this before what happened in this passage of Scripture. And I had to, to prepare for this sermon, look up some of the details again. So don't worry if this is news to you that Pentecost is a Jewish feast day. But it is. It's not just a Jewish feast day. It's the second most important Jewish feast day in the calendar during the time of Jesus. First is Passover, second is Pentecost. And um, it's a day of celebration. It occurs 50 days after Passover and that's why it's called pentecost because pentecost is the greek word for 50th it's the 50th day and on that day jews celebrated two things they celebrated the end of the first harvest season or the begin like the not the end of it but they celebrate the first reaping season the first harvest season and they celebrate the giving of the law the jewish calendar revolved around two seasons of planting and tending and harvesting and at the end of the first harvest um they had to make the wave sheaf offering. So you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, and God has given them the law while they're still in the desert. And if you were to read Leviticus 23, God speaks through Moses and says to them, when you come into the promised land, and you, are, you have made your first harvest, Okay. This is a big deal. They're in the desert. They know where they're going, but they're not there yet. And God says, "When you've entered the promised land, when I have given you what I have promised, and you have you've taken the land and you've settled there and you've planted your first set of crops and you're harvesting the very first fruits of the land that I have given you, then you take the first sheaf of grain." So, the first fruits of the first fruits, and you bring it before the Lord, and you wave it before the Lord, and then you put it into an offering with an unblemished lamb. And until they've done this, they are not allowed to eat of the fruit of the promised land. And so, you have this celebration that's celebrating um, God as provider, celebrating the gift of the promised land, and of course, the Exodus is in the background of that story, and celebrating God as creator. Um, and you bring this together into the celebration of Pentecost. The other thing being celebrated in Pentecost is the giving of the law. And this is because of the way that the feast day falls so close to Passover. So in the Exodus story, the angel of death comes upon Egypt and passes over the homes of the, of the Jews um, because they've taken the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost and this leads to actually being free from egypt and crossing the red sea and all of these other major events of the exodus and what happens shortly after they go into the desert after the holy spirit leads them into the desert is that god takes them to this mountain and he meets moses on the mountain and he gives them the law He gifts them the law. And this is recorded in Exodus chapter 19. And I want to read some of Exodus chapter 19 because there's some important stuff going on here. So, Starting in verse 3, we read, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So it's this identity-forming moment occurring in the giving of the law, remembering what God has done and who they are called to be. So we keep reading. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord that he had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together and said, we will do everything the Lord has said. And Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said and the Lord said, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day because that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch even the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. They will be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid upon them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds, a long blast, may they approach the mountain. So there's a number of... Verses here about them getting prepared and about them consecrating themselves. And then on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a loud trumpet blast, and everyone in camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, And the voice of God answered him. It's a pretty awesome recollection of God coming into their midst to give them the law. And so when you think about Pentecost, you have, for the disciples, gathered together in Jerusalem, all of the expectations and joy that comes with a harvest festival, um, the kind of bountiful party that you enjoy when you're bringing in the fruit of your long months of labor. And along with that, the ongoing remembrance of some of the greatest and most defining moments in Israel's history. The Passover is in the background, the giving of the laws in the foreground, the coming into the promised land the way that God had taken care of them, and the the initiation of the laws that could now actually take place because they're in the promised land to do them. And this is almost certainly the reason why Luke says when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, because they're getting together for this festival. Now, this is not all that's going on, right? As much as they would have been excited for the Feast of Pentecost, and all of the apostles, they're good Jews, so they're celebrating this, um, they also couldn't, I don't think, they could have possibly gotten out of their heads this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, They don't know that the Holy Spirit is coming on that day, right? Jesus didn't give them a timeline. They haven't gathered together on Pentecost knowing that that's going to be the day, but they know the Holy Spirit is coming. They know he's going to be with them soon. And and that itself would have created a huge amount of expectations. Because for the disciples to know the Holy Spirit is coming, they're going to have two things in their mind. They're going to have the Old Testament teachings on who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, and they're going to have Jesus' teachings in mind because Jesus has spoken at length about the Holy Spirit, and we have that recorded in John chapters 14 to 17. And both of those things would have created, I think, a huge amount of excitement. There's more in either of those categories. Like, I don't even have time to read all of John 14 through 17, let alone all the Old Testament passages that refer to the work of the Holy Spirit. But I want to give you some highlights to to try to help you understand why that would have been so exciting for the disciples to know that they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So from the Old Testament, it's quite clear that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Um, The Old Testament doesn't go so far as to explicitly teach the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three in one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it lays the foundation. It shows us, when it speaks of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a separate agent from God, while at the same time being the very presence of God himself. There's no way to really hold those two things together without the idea of God being three in one. What it does teach very clearly is a couple key things. First of all, we're taught, and all Scripture witnesses to these things, but this the disciples could have known just from the Bible they had from the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit is personal, first of all. He is a he, not an it. Um, It's tempting sometimes to speak of the Holy Spirit as a source of power uh, in the abstract, kind of like a battery or like electricity or this kind of thing, but the Holy Spirit is personal. And whenever we talk about God, we use personal language, not as a matter of gender. God is beyond male and female, um, but there's no gender-neutral personal pronoun in English, so we use he. And um, so if you ever catch yourself slipping up and using the word it for the Holy Spirit, correct yourself. (laughs) He is a he. He's personal. He is one of the three persons of God. Um, As God, the Holy Spirit is, he's holy, He's transcendent, um, because God is these things. And what we see really clearly in the Old Testament is that when the Holy Spirit shows up, He does the work of God for the people of God. And that's where the Old Testament reveals the most. Um, Even starting in Genesis, at the very beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering over the the waters of chaos before God the Father speaks the Word, God the Son, to create, to bring order out of that chaos. Um, you see the Holy Spirit primarily through his effects. Jesus picks up on this. This is why when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we often talk about the wind. Because you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind, right? And Jesus picks up on this when he talks about um, talks to Nicodemus. And so the Holy Spirit shows up, and, and he's creative. He's the creative presence of God, and he gifts creativity. You can see this in creation. You can also see this in places like the gifting of Bezalel, with all the different crafts and artistic talents that God gives him for the making of the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving spirit, and he gives new life. Job and the psalmist, they recognize this, they speak of this often. Um, The most powerful place this is portrayed is in the prophet Ezekiel with the valley of dry bones. And the father commands Ezekiel to speak to the Spirit to come and breathe new life. And these dry bones are brought back to life and flesh is knitted upon them and they, they become people in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of revelation and inspiration who leads God's people towards holiness and renewal. We see this in the prophets. We see this in how the Holy Spirit comes upon different kings. Even King Saul is gifted with the Spirit and then led into prophecy. And if that was all the disciples knew about the Holy Spirit, that would be enough to be pretty excited for Jesus to say, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Because one of the other things that's very true in the Old Testament is there's not a huge number of people upon whom the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it's usually just on one person just on the prophet Elijah, just on Bezalel, just on King David, et cetera, et cetera, right? And these are people, the Holy Spirit comes and they do amazing things, right? Suddenly, the stories are beyond human capacity when the Holy Spirit shows up. So Jesus has told them the Holy Spirit's gonna show up and you know they're thinking like, they're thinking about all these amazing people and all these amazing stories in the Old Testament and thinking like, what's, what's he gonna do this time? Because the flip side of this is that he never shows up in the same way twice, or he doesn't seem to. There's always familiarity. There's always common themes and common echoes. Um, But he's also always doing a new thing, because the Holy Spirit is very, very creative. But that isn't all they've got to go on, because Jesus has talked to them about the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to read a few things from John chapter 14 to 17. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. This is a Greek word. means advocate or one who comes alongside of you to support you. And so often as Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit, he's spoken of as the one who will comfort and teach and encourage. And Jesus is explicit about these things. So he says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit is... Of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. Jumping forward, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. And then he says something incredible. It's a little further ahead in John. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. You aren't ready for everything I have to teach you, right? But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will speak not on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you of what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Right? And these are another set of incredible promises. Jesus has taught them and led them through amazing things. They've walked in his authority over sickness and over demons. Right? that He's taught them how to pray. He's taught them of the Father so much so that he can say to them, if you've seen me, Jesus, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And then he says to them, there's more. There's so much more, but you're not ready yet. So the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to give that to you, right? And for people who've walked with Jesus for three years to hear that there's more than what they've already seen, like, you'd have to be excited. You'd have to be. So this is where their minds are at, I think, as they gather together on Pentecost, And when we link those two sets of expectations together, we see some really cool stuff going on. Because what's happening, what happens on the day of Pentecost here 2,000 years ago, it's the same thing God did with the day of Passover. So you think about Passover. We talked about this as we led up to Easter. Um, The disciples are gathered together to celebrate God's rescue from slavery, of his people from slavery out of Egypt, right? Right? And Jesus, as they sit down to eat the Passover meal together, he picks up the bread. He says, this is my body given for you. And he takes the celebration of Passover and he re-centers it on himself. Because what Jesus is doing is all the same work that God did on Passover, but even more so. The nation of Israel is rescued from Egypt. Through the work of Jesus, all of his people are rescued from sin and death. Through the Passover, the nation of Israel is led to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Through the work of Jesus, we are promised a place in the kingdom of God for all eternity. Right? And so it's like the next level. Exactly the same thing is going on with Pentecost. Celebration of Pentecost... You celebrate the first fruits of the harvest of God in the promised land, which for Israel is grain and lamb and and really good things. But Paul picks up on this and he talks about the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of our inheritance. We receive the Holy Spirit as the first fruit of the kingdom of God. We get to walk in the power of the presence of God. We're not fully in that kingdom yet, but we're already receiving those first fruits. And so the celebration of that first harvest becomes a celebration of that first gift for us of God himself. Then you think about the giving of the law, the celebration of The revelation of the law, which is a revelation of who God is and also who he's called us to be. And what is it that happens when the Holy Spirit comes? The prophets pick up on this. They say that in those days, I will send my spirit among my people, and I will take your hearts of stone, and I will give you hearts of flesh, and I will write the law on your heart. Right? And this is what's going on with the Holy Spirit. We're being given the gift, not just of a written law that reveals to us who God is and who we are called to be, but the presence of God himself in our hearts, revealing, as Jesus has just said, teaching us the even more about who God is and also who we're called to be. And I didn't read those passages, but that promise is picked up on all over the place too, where when, we are, when we're asked to answer and when we're brought before kings and officials and authorities and charged, that we don't need to worry about what we're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give us the words, right? Because he's going to write on our heart those things. And so that the, all of that was embodied in the festival of Pentecost, it's like the next level up in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so it's good to remember that Pentecost was a Jewish feast day. It's much more so a day of celebration for us. And all of those things that the Old Testament reveals about who the Holy Spirit is, being as he comes to give creativity and to give life and to give revelation and to give inspiration, all of those things are going on on the day of Pentecost as well. But there's some really key differences In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes, and it's pretty much always just on one person. Here, in this room, the tongues of fire come down and rest upon all those present. All of the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. When God comes down on the mountain, he comes down in fire, right? And how does the Holy Spirit come down? He comes down in tongues of fire. But on the mountain... God's presence is obscured with smoke, and all of the people, as consecrated as they are, can come no closer than the foot of the mountain, lest they die. On the day of Pentecost, the coming of God is clear, and rather than telling all of the people that they can't come into the presence of God, with the presence of God upon them, the disciples step out. And they go out to all of the people and they speak to all of them in their own language and they preach. And if we were to keep reading, what we see right after this is Peter preaches this amazing sermon and by the end of it, 3,000 people are added to their number. And that doesn't just mean 3,000 people have believed their word. It does that. It also means that they have received the Holy Spirit too. Because this gifting of the Holy Spirit, thanks to the work of Jesus on the cross, is now a gift for all of God's people because we we who have accepted Jesus have been covered by his blood and are consecrated and made clean in such a way that we can be in the presence of God like this. We can have God live in us and that is what God longs for. This is what the Holy Spirit loves to come and be with his people. And so in speaking of the person of the Holy Spirit, we have to say this is always God's desire for renewed relationship, for reconciliation, for restoration of the intimacy that was lost in the garden because of sin. I imagine the Holy Spirit coming as tongues of flame and resting upon each of the disciples as a moment of great joy in the heart of God. I think when Luke describes this, and it all seems like and looks like language. You may not have noticed that or, as you read it, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. How do you describe the coming of God, right? Luke is doing his best, but he can't quite do it. And I think what he's describing is the joyful, dancing presence of God rejoicing as he comes to be with his people. Just as the father in the parable hikes up his, his robe and runs to meet his long lost son. right, And every, every action is displaying the joy of coming back together with his son, with his family, with his long lost loved one. And I think that's exactly what we see here. I actually think you get to the end of this passage that we read today and you have this weird moment. You got all these people hearing the Jews, hearing the disciples' story, talk in their own language, and they're amazed and they're perplexed, and they say, "What does this mean?" And some of them come up with this theory that seems to make very little sense. Some of them made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And I've wondered, I've wondered, what is going on that some of the people there looked at them and said, "You're drunk," because it's not the languages, right? You don't, you don't see people speaking in foreign tongues and say, you have had too much to drink, right? This is not a known effect of alcohol. It would be really strange if it was. Like, I just had one too many glasses of beer and I suddenly started speaking Russian, right? Like, we don't do this, so what was happening? And I've wondered about this, and as I read through this and thought through this with this week, you know what I think it is? I think that they're watching them and they're seeing people having so much fun and laughing and dancing and expressing joy. And they've probably only seen that kind of anything like that through the counterfeit joy of being drunk. And so they see this and they put them into the only box they've got. You've been drinking. That's the only time people act like this. Except it's not. It's not the only time people act like they're full of joy and full of rejoicing and dancing and laughing and all of these things, because that's what it's like to be in the presence of God. That's why Paul can say, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the only contrast that makes sense. Like, what else in your experience of drunkenness, like what, the hangover is going to be comparable to being filled with the Holy Spirit, the, la- the, la- the loss of judgment? Right? Like the loss of good character. I don't think the Holy Spirit does any of those things for Paul to make that contrast. I think it's the joy because God is so excited for this moment and his people join him in that. This is who our God is. He longs to be with us. You look at the work of the Holy Spirit all throughout Scripture. It's always for the people of God. It's always to bring the people of God back to him. Even in the craftsmanship of Bezalel, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look at some of the chapters. I'm going to forget exactly where this is. It's when they're building the tabernacle in the desert. So it's somewhere in Exodus, but I forget which chapter. And it says that he's gifted with every kind of artistic craftsmanship. And then he leads a group of people. What's he doing? He's building the place for the people to meet with God. Right? You look at the judges who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Why are they filled with the Holy Spirit? So they can throw off the yoke of oppression, the people can be free once again to worship God. Right? It's always about bringing the people of God together to be with Him. That's what the Holy Spirit always does. You look at the story of Scripture from beginning to end, and this is the truth at the core of who God is and what He's up to, that He longs to be with His people. You look at the Gospels, the story of Jesus from beginning to end, as God himself walks among his people as a human being. And he has a heart that beats with the rhythm of that desire. He longs for intimacy with us. And here we sit in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the present age, the age of the church, of the kingdom of God being among us, but not yet fully present, the age of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, And that day to this, it's the same truths at the core of who God is and what he's up to. And for some of us here today, that's what you need to hear. God longs to be with you. That's what the the work of the Holy Spirit is about. That's what he's about. That's why when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and enters your life. Because what God longs for is for you to walk with him and to know him, to experience his love and return it. If you're not in that relationship today, then I would invite you to begin. Jesus has already done all the work. We're not like the people of Israel, waiting for God to come down on Mount Sinai, and you've got to spend two days consecrating yourself and making sure you're ready so you don't die. Jesus did all that. All you have to do is ask. For some of us this morning, we're in that relationship already. And what we need is a reminder that these are the truths we are called to live out to walk with the creative, life-giving, revealing, and inspiring Holy Spirit to guide us to live in the love of God and to live out the love of God to the world around us. The gifts of the Holy Spirit come upon the apostles and the disciples and the first thing they do is they step out and give it to more people. It's not for us. It's for us to give. That is our mission. We're meant to walk in those same truths from the beginning to the end of this age as well which is to say, until Jesus returns, to recognize the Holy Spirit as the presence of God himself, offered and given, not for our sake, but for the sake of the people around us. And so I want to make that call this morning, whichever one of those two places you're in. If you're here this morning and this isn't a relationship you have, then I'd call you to begin it. There's nothing better than life with God. There's nothing more of his goodness, there can't be because it's him. And then for those of us who are already in that place, to be prayerfully considering where you need to step out in the power of the Holy Spirit to share the life that he's given you. There are places and people around you who desperately need that. So ask the Lord this morning either to enter your life or to open your eyes and ears and heart for where he wants to move through you into the lives of others. So let's pray about that right now. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for the day of Pentecost. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, for that first fruits of your kingdom. Thank you for being here, Spirit. Thank you for being here, Jesus. Thank you for being here, Father. I pray for anyone here this morning who is in a place where they don't know you and they're not in a relationship with you. Reveal to them your goodness and your love. Show them your heart, Lord God, and begin that walk with them. And I pray that anyone who's here who who feels like there's something stopping them, that they would face that. And whatever that means, um, talk to someone. um, May you meet them in that place. I don't know where they're at and what they need, but you do, Lord. Work in your power to bring people to you. And for those of us here this morning who do know you, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to those around us who you long to pour your life over and into. Give us opportunities to speak your truth and to share your gospel and to share your Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.